Welcome to Voice It, a podcast showcasing people in the Clare Valley and the mid-north of South Australia who've started their own businesses from scratch and have turned them into success stories. This is a chance for them to tell you their story. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. The number of people I meet, I nearly made it to the Olympics or I I would have been an AFL player. There's a million of those people. And look, for whatever reason, that didn't happen for them. But actually, you can do it. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing a former Olympian who calls the Clare Valley her home. Anna McVan grew up in the Adelaide suburbs, the youngest of six kids. But she wasn't just any kid. At the age of 15, she represented Australia at the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. There she made four finals, an amazing result, which put this teenage girl in the spotlight as an up-and-coming Australian swimmer to watch. In this episode, you'll hear about the gruelling training regimes, the diet, the international swimming comps, the Olympic experience, the comeback, Crystal Palace physioing for the Olympic diving team. This woman has done so much. I just can't wait for you to hear it all. I've never met anyone with so much discipline and determination. Who else would rock up to swimming training in a wheelchair with a leg in plaster and still want to train? This is just one of the many stories you'll hear. After the dizzying heights of swimming stardom and international travel, Anna saw her life to be in Paris or London or even New York. But on a trip back to Australia, she was swept off her feet by a farmer from the Clare Valley, Tom Hawker. She settled down, had four children and set up her own successful physiotherapy business. Strap in. This is Anna's story. I um, am the youngest of six and grew up in Adelaide. Um, my dad was actually born in France and mum was from Yarrawonga in Victoria. Dad's not French, by the way. He's English. His parents just happened to be there. They were in the textile industry, um, living in France at the time. But dad um, ended up in Geelong at college and mum was a, a Victorian from Yarrawonga and then studied physio and lived in Melbourne. And they had my eldest brother and sister in Melbourne in the early 1960s and then then they moved to Adelaide with Dad's business, which was, um, as I said, textiles, and and the rest of us came along. So youngest of six. So all your siblings would have been the ones looking after you, I can imagine. Um, well, interestingly, Mum had six of us in eight years. Yeah, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. So my eldest sister was born in 1960, and I was born in 1968. So. There wasn't a huge age age gap between any of us. They did help, but not really. And my eldest sister got married when I was 12, so she left home at 21. And I remember being, I was only saying to Imogen on the weekend, I remember being, you know, left at, you know, 14 and 15 when all the others were at parties. And on a Saturday night, it'd be mum and, mum and dad and I would go to mass and then we'd go out to these really fancy restaurants and have dinner and I'd always fall asleep at the table because Imogen's a bit like that at the moment. She's the one that's not out. And I said, you know, I remember being just like you. And, um, but we had So a, you don't take her to mass and take her to fancy <laughs> restaurants? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, the Catholic in me would love to say yes. Occasionally she comes to mass, but not on a Saturday night. <laughs> so look, I had a, a very happy childhood, you know, busy, busy, all at school, the, you know, Catholic schools in Adelaide. So I was at Loretto from grade one. The boys even went to Loretto back in that day. They had the first few years at Loretto and then they went to Ross Trevor. We played lots of sports, tennis, netball, and then obviously moved into swimming. So the story goes that I thought Dad used to play golf every Saturday morning, but apparently Dad thought he'd book the kids into swimming lessons so he could take them to Norwood Pool and they could have swimming lessons and he could read the paper on the lawn so he'd get a little break even though <laughs> he worked full time and wasn't home that much and that's sort of how the family got into swimming. So how old were you when you started swimming? We had a pool put in in 1974 and I was so I was six then five or six and I just remember learning to swim when we got the pool in or just before so I would have been about four or five and then I just tagged along with the others. I was that annoying little sister at swimming who would be underwater blowing bubbles and and pulling down people's bathers and things. So that was sort of the next probably seven years until I was about 10 or 11. And is that when you realised, oh, I'm actually not bad at this? Well. When did that come? No, well, actually, I wasn't that good. Weren't you? No. (laughs) I mean, look, you know, I guess in the scale of things, but no, I wasn't really. I was certainly wasn't the most talented as a young swimmer. But I mean, I did qualify for the Nationals 
when I was 12 years old. So that was well, that was sort of the age group then, 12 and under. So I'd sort of come up through the ranks. I mean, I remember things like being at the Shell Age, which is the equivalent of Sapsaza sort of thing now, and and thinking, you know, I was going to win a medal and, and I never won a medal and then I finally won a medal and everyone was so relieved that finally, like, Anna got something. Like, it was that, you know, I was kind of that that little girl who – I was quite round then. My so, nickname was Little Fatty. <laughs> And so, look, I wasn't really that good, but I did manage to qualify for this national championships when I was 12 and we went to Perth and as as a club team and there was, you know, maybe 25 of us and I just assumed because older kids in the club had been before that you went to the national championships and everyone automatically won gold medals and I went to these nationals and had these events, like three or four events and I didn't even make a final and I was just devastated. I was like, oh. And the manager and manageress at the time, their daughter was my age and she'd won a medal. And I remember the parents pulling myself and my dear friend Jane into their room at the end of the national championships and basically sitting us down and saying, you know, you're wasting your parents' time and money. We really think you should try something else. Like, <laughs> you know, and oh, no. so we were just like, oh, we thought we'd done all our best times and we hadn't made a final one. I mean, we were pretty happy with ourselves, sort of. So that was sort of the first thing. And then I remember not long after that coming home from those nationals and we trained at Burnside Pool and there's the big pool there, but there's also the little pool with the windows. So before the days of video cameras or underwater cameras, the technique sessions were in the little pool at Burnside where the coach would stand and look through the windows and and then you'd say, you know, you're not doing this or this. Well, he maintains that I said to him, I'm going to the Olympics, but I remember him saying to me, I think you could make it to the Olympics. And so I think a combination, and also being the youngest of six, you know, always trying to prove myself. So it didn't matter what I did. I was always kind of like just, you know, striving for a bit of attention. So why do you think he said that to you? What did you do for him to say, I reckon you can make it to the Olympics? Well, I think, I mean, I was always a hard worker and obviously... You know, I could I could swim, but maybe just my my personality more than anything. You know, youngest of six. I think that, yeah, just maybe determination. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. And, and you know, we had so it was so social. I mean, it's like you know the Clare Swim Club here. Everyone comes along, and you have a great time, and you go to carnivals and things. So yeah, I, I did love it. And so I guess a little sort of fire started burning then, and. And I guess it was that whole thing that I never doubted myself. Like I just thought that, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. Which was, you know, so at the age of 12, I didn't even make a national final. By 13, I was ranked number one in my age group in Australia. And by 14, I won my first national open championships and made my first Australian open team. So that was the year before the Olympics. You know, so I guess in those that in that time period, of course, you know, obviously 12 months is a long time if you're training twice a day, putting in all the hours and distance swimming became my focus. Mm-hmm. So not a sprinter, more well, long no, distance. No, except okay. there's a funny story about that too, but which we'll come to later yep. at the Olympic trials. But so the focus was definitely my, if a distance freestyle swimming, 400 and 800, and that was my target. So a lot of, and we were in the day in the early 80s where more is best. So we used to have things like Hell Week where we'd swim 120 kilometres. Like I remember one one year over summer, so that was 10 sessions a week, so twice a day, every day, maybe 12 sessions a week, and we'd swim between 10 and 12 kilometres. You know, and that was in the summer holidays. That was sort of, you know, while everyone else was off partying at the beach or <laughs> having a relaxing summer holiday, we were all sort of, you know, swimming to Murray Bridge, basically. That was sort of the, you know, it's like, oh, I, got, I would have got to Murray Bridge this week. And, and so, were you swimming every day? Are we talking mm, every morning, f- crack of dawn, mm, following yeah, yeah. that white line? Yeah. Black line, yeah. The black yeah. line. <laughs> black line. White line not, fever. You can, tell, <laughs> you can tell I'm not a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but your children will be. Ah. Um, so following, yeah, so up and down, up and down. And because I was training distance, I was often training with the boys because they were, you know, just that there weren't sort of many girls. And I was often kept in longer, doing longer sessions and more sessions. And there's a lot of tears. Like I remember sort of... <laughs> Yeah. But didn't stop me. But, you know, it was that whole thing. I never missed a session, even if I was tired or had too much homework. Mum and Dad had sort of pretty much said, well, if you want to do this, it's up to you. We're not waking you up. We're not, you know, I mean, they didn't say we're not taking you. They fully supported me, but they were a bit done with the early morning. So my coach used to pick me up. So I remember, you know, there'd be nights where I'd get up and be all dressed and ready for swimming and realise it was like three o'clock in the morning. 
you know, one time I remember my alarm didn't go off and I went into mum and dad in tears just saying, my alarm didn't go off, can you take me swimming? And they're like, no, bad luck, you know, get your own way. Well, no, I think they did take me in oh. the end. But so there were sacrifices that came with that, obviously, so as a who, teenager. Who was your coach? Um, Graham Brown. So I swam for the Burnside, well, Burnside Southside and then Burnside Swimming Club. And was he known to be a great coach? I mean, what's um, his legacy? Well, he had coached Debbie Palmer along with Harry Gallagher. So he was sort of an, an offset of Harry Gallagher. Um, he'd had lots of national swimmers. but um, So Harry Gallagher coached Dawn Fraser and um, he was sort of in the old Adelaide baths when the pool was at where the festival centre is. He oh. was sort of the forefront of sort of swim coaching in Australia had some very famous names can't name them all off now he was sort of came on in after that so once you did the nationals and you gained momentum was it then the Pan Pacific that you Mm. were involved in when I was 14 I I was selected on the Australian pre-olympic team so the Olympics in 1984 were in Los Angeles. So this was 1983. So I'd really only been to national events. I'd never been overseas. So first up, pre-Olympic meet in Los Angeles. So as a 14-year-old, I was packed off with my koala bear to the other side of the world with, you know, there were no mobile phones or anything, a team of 20 or so, you know, mostly young earth swimmers, or, but they were sort of open team, you know, as a little pre-warm-up to the Olympics. So we had a training camp at Stanford University. So I remember reverse charging mum and dad in tears. Like I, I didn't sleep, I don't think, the whole time I was there. What, because you, you were worried or excited? I was, no, I think I was nervous and oh. away from home. I mean, I'd been on school camps and to national championships, but I'd never been away from my family before, um, you know, in that sort of capacity. And I mean, I was 14 years old and you think of that now, before mobile phones or anything, um, I sort of had a kind of sponsorship that some family friends of ours were the Tandies and sort of Tandy Jelly Beans sponsored me. And so I remember Dad sending me over Tandy Jelly Beans to <laughs> cheer me up. And they, they didn't want to go with you? I don't think it was an option. Oh. And similarly, in you know, to, to latter years as well, I, I remember at, on that trip and I was really quite homesick and I remember Bill Sweetnam was the head coach. He was a short round man rather amazing coach pulled me aside one day and said Anna just get over it like you're not going home you're here to swim just get over it it's a waste of time waste of energy you've been homesick just you know forget about it it was a good lesson to learn early on and you got on with it so I got on with it yeah and I won a couple of silver medals and a couple of bronze medals at the pre-olympic meet in Los Angeles so it was it was at USC which is where the Olympics were held the next year it was really fun. Like it was the middle of summer. I mean, we were in Los Angeles. We went to Disneyland. And then I think only a month or two later, they also took me to the Pan Pacific meet, which was in Japan. Oh, wow. So again, as a 14-year-old. So I was in year 10 at school, packed my bags and off I went to Japan, to Tokyo. And so it was just, you know, and we were treated like rock stars. Like I remember sort of going into the pool and there was all these Japanese people like lining the glass doors and like banging on the doors and wanting to swap things with us and you know just little you know what the Japanese they have all those intricate little toys kitty, ki- hello yes, kitty things yes, and yes. pins and you know little lunch boxy things and I was just in heaven you can imagine so I came home from Japan with all of this stuff everyone thought it was Christmas oh and, and similarly I'd come home from America with like M&Ms and red licorice <laughs> and all this stuff Hershey cups and all those things that we never had it didn't have in Australia at that time so you know which is hilarious because you know clearly wasn't exactly what an elite athlete should be eating. Um, I was going to ask you about your diet, whether it was this strict diet that you had to abide by, especially going into those massive events like the Pan Pacific and the Olympics and all those type of mm. things. Was there a diet that you had to stick by? Mm. And did you feel like you were hungry? No, all the time? no, no, no. I don't think so. No, obviously you can imagine in a big family, I just got whatever was on the plate. We had yeah. a fairly basic diet at home and we actually, I actually swam on a diet of steak and beetroot so if we had a big meet at home I would get up in the morning have steak and beetroot go off race the heats come home have another steak and beetroot and ice cream and jelly have a sleep wake up have another so I sort of that was sort of my racing diet why steak and beetroot I don't know that was just what mum served me and I think I guess in hindsight I mean that you know very wholesome you know the steak is the protein so that was my sort of racing diet if it was school holidays and we went to someone's house for breakfast there'd be pancake competitions or wheat bix competitions to see who'd eat the most wheat bix so nothing really really structured about my diet. I mean, oh, okay. there was a few, you know, there was definitely talks on dietitians from, by dietitians from time to time. Weren't really into carb loading or anything like that even in those days. So I had a pretty normal diet 
That's know, good. Just, That's yeah. good. That's actually quite refreshing to hear because you just hear about these elite athletes mm. who have to be on these strict diets mm. and strict routines. And I love it. Steak and beetroot all the way. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> and yeah. ice cream and jelly. And ice cream and jelly. <laughs> and <laughs> pancake com- eating competitions. competitions. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's talk about the Pam. Pacific Championships in Tokyo. So I went over there, at, you know, similar as a, you know, pretty fresh-faced 14-year-old. And anyway, I got a silver medal in the 800 freestyle. So that was pretty impressive. impressive. So it's all yep. looking, you know, pretty good for the Olympics. And then, so that was August. And so then hard summer ahead of swimming, training. And then we had Olympic trials in maybe the February or March. And the Olympics were then in August. So the thing about the Olympic trials in those days, similar to now, you had to finish in the top two in your event and you had to go under the qualifying time to make the Olympic team. So headed to Brisbane for that and, and I entered all freestyle events and I think the medley. So I had a massive program, which was pretty normal for me. So my 400 and 800 were my sort of goals to make the Olympic team. And I think the 200 freestyle might have been the first night and I won that. So that was quite like not expected. And then I ended up winning the 400 and the 800. And then on the last night, I had the 100 free, which I'd entered because I really wanted to make the relay team, and the 1500, which was an Olympic event at that stage. So I remember swimming, going into the 100 free, just thinking, oh, it'd be really great if I got in the top four, I think. Yeah, because I didn't used to take six then. And I remember being at the halfway mark and doing the tumble turn and looking across the pool and thinking, oh, I'm in this. You know, I won. I won the 100 freestyle, which is ridiculous because I wasn't a sprinter. I mean, I was a reasonable, had a reasonable 100 time. But, you know, these poor girls had trained their whole life and they were built like I was this tiny little greyhound stick thing. You weren't the round, uh, the round no, kid I'd anymore? No, definitely my nickname had become little by then. So I'd gone from little uh, little fatty to just little. He'd had to, that was my brother's, had to drop the fatty. And I won the 100 free. But it's so funny. I remember looking at the replay of that and I was so not in the money at the turn. I don't know what I saw when I looked across <laughs> the pool. But, you know, and I think that just is that. Was that just focus of mine? Like I was just, you know, what, I just thought, well, I can do this. So and you won every single event. Mm, and then the 1500 as well that night. Yeah, so Did that all just five. blow your mind? That I didn't think really anything of it. But it's always, it's always you know, whenever anyone, you know, now, what are we, 30-something years later, people still sort of refer to that as the, mm. you know, the benchmark that I was the only person. I'm not sure if Shane Gould had done that before me. And I don't know if anything anyone has done it since. Really? Or maybe... Certainly not in Olympic trials anyway. And it defied all the, you know, physiologists because, you know, if you're a sprinter, you're not a distance swimmer, your makeup's very different. So it was, you know, I sort of don't really know how I did it either. So that was just me being, you know, I was 15 then. So I was in year 11 at school, made the Olympic team. And there was a bit of hype too at the time because the gold medalist from Moscow, Michelle Ford, had also competed to make the Olympic team and she'd had a shoulder injury and didn't finish in the top two and didn't get to go to the Olympics. So there was protests on and it was sort of all, you know, a bit controversial about, you know, how did I feel at this girl? And I was a bit like, you know, whatever. I just kind of stayed out. It was all a bit much for me. Just went back to school. and Well, and speaking of school, were you treated like a bit of a celebrity, a bit of a rock star at school? Um, it's funny. I do often now run into people who went to school with me who were, who were a bit younger and they, oh, I remember you from school. The school was amazing. Like they really looked after me you know I was allowed to sort of skip PE lessons and because I was when I was training obviously my my schedule I was quite exhausted and so that year 11 was a bit of you know the school accommodated me very well for that and the whole school stopped when I swam at the Olympics and the whole of my year 11 class was at the airport to meet me when I came home and friends went and saw me off so big send-off and big welcome home it was pretty exciting I mean you know Loretto college in Adelaide well a convent I think we were still then even it was so lovely for me just because I had that massive community supporting me and how did you mm. before we get to the Olympics how did you balance school life I know they said they were quite accommodating but to keep up with your schoolwork as well as have a grueling swimming mm. schedule like that yeah, I was pretty, uh, I was just pretty organised. I was very routine. And in fact, you know, to this day, I find I'm so much better if I have a routine. But, you know, we get up in the morning, train, so up at 4.30, pool at 5, swim till 7, 7.30 to school, home after school. Often had a bit of a window after school. So I'd do my homework in that half an hour and then swimming till maybe 7 and then home and then homework for a little bit and then sort of bed at 8.30, you know, eat, sleep, repeat kind of thing. So I was very sort of structured and disciplined. When did you socialise with your friends? Well, I did manage to do that a bit on weekends. I didn't miss out on much. There were definitely over the summer it was hard. You know, I didn't get to go to the beach. A lot of friends went to Victor Harbour and things for holidays and I we didn't do a lot of that. 
I still yeah. managed to go to a few parties on the weekend. Don't you worry about that. And anything I missed out on, I caught up on soon after. <laughs> I mean, obviously, down the track, it did get to the point where I realised it was more fun getting home at 4.30 in the morning than getting up at 4.30 in the morning. And that was sort of the crucial turning point that my wife. swimming career <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> didn't last much longer after that. But, I mean, you know, it's like anything. You just make the sacrifices. Mm. And I was very focused on what I was doing. And I had yeah. a lot of friends doing the same thing. You know, yeah. we had a big network of friends and still some of my best friends to this day are, are people that I swam with, you know, here. Well, let's talk about the Olympics. How did you go after that awesome success at the the trials? Mm. Well, I ended up being selected. I just swam the 200, 400 and 800 freestyle and the relay. relay. I didn't do the individual um, 100 metre freestyle because that was sort of a too big a program. We flew over like a month before the Olympics, had a training camp again at Stanford. So it was all very similar to what we'd done the year Mm -hmm. before. So I was fairly sort of familiar with it all. Not homesick this time? bit but not really but again okay. no, my, no none of my family were there which I just sort of I guess now as a mother you think oh wow and they always maintain that they'd see more on television that and they were probably right my coach came over but he wasn't a part of the coaches of the team like he wasn't on the team so he was kind of he wasn't really allowed in the village or on pool deck oh. so I'd talk to him through the fence and stuff so I sort of had a, a coach I Laurie Lawrence I was allocated Laurie as my coach. Oh, what was he like? Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Like very sort of inspirational, motivational. Yeah, I ended up later in 86 going up to Brisbane to train with him, but that's sort of down the track. But yeah, so he was sort of my coach and he liaised with Graham who was over there, but no family or friends. There was one family from Adelaide who, who swam with us and um, her mother had come to the Olympics and I remember walking out for my first final and seeing a sign that said go Anna from Adelaide and that was lovely you know the village was just like a circus everything on tap M&M's McDonald's the food hall was just I mean it was just amazing movie cinemas like I remember seeing Ghostbusters you know at the Olympic Village the M&M's and the brownies were fairly sort of high on my list of (laughs) priorities too um you know so you could get your hair done by Vidal Sassoon so it was really fun and I remember sort of there was bunting everywhere you know in the Olympic colours and Laurie used to make sure make us sit with a different faculty every time so you'd sit with the Bulgarian weightlifters or the you know African athletes and all shapes and sizes creeds and colours all languages it was it was amazing and I've still got a like you know what is it now 30 years later is it 40 years later, I can still remember it so clearly. Well, I remember the opening ceremony. That was just like we sat in the um, boxing hall, I think it was, for hours while the actual, you know, all the performances were on. And I remember sitting on Rob DeCostella's knee and catching up with Dean Lucan because he was obviously, you know, a South Australian and, you know, massive. Imagine me as a little 15. I mean, I was, I mean, it's tall, but I was just a 15 year old girl, really. And all these um, amazing athletes. So it was. Was Lisa Curry in the mix then? Yeah, so she was on the team um, and the mean machine. So Neil Brook. And lots of older, you know, I was one of the, obviously one of the young, younger members of the team, not the youngest. There was a girl, I was 15 and there was a 14 year old girl on the team. And there was a couple of other 16, 17 year olds. So there's a young crew of us, but there was also a lot of the older, sort of wiser, more experienced swimmers. So it was amazing. Yeah. And I remember the races and um, so I had the 200 first, wasn't expected to make the final and did, made lane eight and I think came eighth, but did a personal best then. And the 400 made the final, did a personal best and finished fifth. And then the 800 was my last and my sort of biggest event. And I swam the heat one morning and I qualified second fastest. I'd done a personal best time by I think three seconds or something so it was quite good and went went in second fastest into the final so we had the heat one morning and then we had that afternoon and then we had a rest day and then I had another day and the final was the following night you know that was hard because it sort of delayed things out but and I ended up finishing fourth in the in the 800 but I'd still done I don't think I did went as fast as I did in the heat but even if I had, I wouldn't have got a medal. So it's that the thing with an 800 is you just want to make the final. So some of the other girls hadn't killed themselves in the heat. And then obviously I yeah, got fourth, which the race before mine was John Sieben. And he was one of my training buddies. Laurie Lawrence coached him and he won the gold medal in the race before me. So I was like there. I was like, I've got, you know, I've got this. So I guess I was a little bit disappointed that I hadn't got a medal, but fourth at the Olympic Games so I ended up was it also because you had qualified for second fastest so you had it in your head that you um, you can do this well yeah well I sort of always I mean I was obviously going for gold that was the ultimate certainly wasn't ranked number one in the world by any means like I think I was probably only 
seventh or eighth in the world going into the Olympics. You know, you always believe you can do these things. So what happened after that, after that, your first Olympics? Oh, well, we had a lot of fun straight after the Olympics, I must say. Thank goodness there was no social media. Please so, tell. Well, what did you well, get up maybe to? Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe maybe off the air another time. Um, but oh. we had lots of parties in the village. Got to sort of travel, you know, move around LA a bit um, as a fifteen-year-old. And <laughs> not sure I'd really want my fifteen-year-old daughters or sons, for that matter, doing the same. I think because the swimming's first up, and then you would could potentially stay in the village for the closing ceremony. But what they what the Australian Australian swimming did was um, move all the younger kids, the underage kids, to we went to Hawaii on the way home. So they took us to Hawaii and we were in Hawaii for a few nights and that was fun. Very fun. Bought my first boogie board. I think I've got a photo of that in there of me signing my boogie board. We became the boogie team, Australian boogie team. And, you know, we came home. So I hadn't seen my family for probably a couple of months and... Qantas were very excited that we were on the plane. So I sort of got off the plane, just desperate to kind of see my family. And my whole year 11 class of Loretto were at the airport, which was lovely. But all I, you know, I was tired and I think they might have even given us some champagne on the plane. So I I just was like, well, I just want my family. So that was, I remember that was really overwhelming. You know, the media were there and everything and people had flowers and I had my koala bear and my jacket on and yeah it was all very exciting and so the whole signing autographs and doing all that do you remember the first time you were approached to sign an autograph was that like a big deal always yeah yeah I mean people would come up with their autograph books and of course I had an autograph book so I knew that like I you know I used to do that sort of thing so I used to love that and I'd always put a little smiley face and stuff it certainly I you know I was famous in my little area do you know what I mean I mean in there weren't many not many Olympic athletes ever from South Australia so you know we had the big ticker tape parade when we got back that was that photo you said you'd seen with me waving waving from a balcony or something yeah (laughs) Yeah, the um, the the town hall the the town hall (laughs) yeah it was the town hall yeah and so there was lots of hype and you know, obviously the school, everyone was so excited and, and you know, all the schools because Adelaide's so small and because I was from a big family, everyone knew everyone. So, you know, everyone had a connection to our family and I think my brothers and sisters for years were just so tired of being, you know, you Anna McVan's brother or sister and so, you know, now I always tell them if I run into someone and they say, oh, are you Mary Lou's sister or are you John's sister or Sue's sister? I say, well, someone just asked me if I was your, you know, so it sort of all comes around in the end. Yeah. I think yeah. they all got a bit sick of it. But um, I was going to ask you, when you saw your family for the first time after when you got home from the Olympics, I mean, what were they like? Were they emotional? Oh, what were they yeah, like? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I can't yeah. really remember. Um, it was always funny though. I mean, you know, I think that was probably a bit of a secret to my success was that it didn't really matter what I did. I was still the six in the family. And I'd often get that, you know, we don't care how many Olympics you've been to or how many gold medals you've won. You're still like bottom of the run. And even now to this day, look, I love them all dearly, but I still feel like it, you know, even now that I'm 53 and I have a master's degree and four children and they still like to give me a bit of advice, <laughs> which I take. It's really nice to come from a big family and have all that support and and cocoon you a bit too. So what happened after the Olympics? The Commonwealth Games was the next on the list. So I was in year 11 when I got back from the Olympics. So I took a bit of a break. And then in that summer, I swam faster again over that summer and made a European tour. So I went to Paris, Amsterdam. So Holland and France on a tour. I remember my French teacher. I was doing French in year 12. quite sure why I was never very good at it but she was so upset because we'd been to Paris and we didn't even see the Eiffel Tower <laughs> so that was I can't fun. believe you didn't see the Eiffel Tower. I know we probably did I probably just wasn't looking um but we didn't definitely didn't go to the Eiffel Tower because it was you know in the burbs of Paris the pool was indoor it was winter it was freezing so that was fun that was another sort of young crew of kids sort of a stepping stone to the next thing and then I sort of pulled back quite a bit in my year 12 so I was quite focused and you know mum and dad always said you can't swim forever and you've got to you know have an education and everyone did particularly Olympics and stuff I remember taking books away with me when I went on those previous tours and people like what are you doing like a lot of them didn't really rate school whereas I was very focused on school and my family was very much you know you are going to get an education despite all of this and and I was fine with that like was just did you know what you wanted to do well I did I always wanted to be a physio well mum was a physio and I spent a lot of time in physio, but at physios, I didn't really think they helped me a lot. It's funny, my youngest is, was reiterating this the other day, but I, with my job, I wanted to travel the world, be able to work part-time, 
and be financially independent, which we all laugh about because my husband would debate the latter, but that's because I went on and had four children very quickly. But that sort of was always my thing. I wanted to travel the world and work as a physio and mum had done that. She'd gone on a boat to Canada and worked and stuff. So, and it was hard, you know, as it is now too, hard to get into physio. So you had to get a very good whatever it was score. called then. I'm impressed that you yeah. had what you had and then you got a score that was mm. quite high so you were smart as well, Anna. Jeez. Well, I worked Some kids just hard. have it all. Well, we would say I'm good on paper but my husband would debate whether I'm all that worldly. You know that whole like good on paper but sometimes not so street smart. Um, <laughs> but we, during year 12 I swam every morning, trained every morning but in the afternoons I would either run or I had a swim bench which is kind of like a rowing machine but it's a swimmer's rowing machine. So you lie on your tummy and pull your straps rather than row oh. in the pool room at home. So every afternoon I'd either run home from school or I would do my swim bench and then I would study. I had this massive routine that I just studied. And so I took a step back with my swimming, but didn't enter many meets, didn't travel. Okay, Charlie. Shh, shh, shh. Um, <laughs> Charlie's very um, protective. <clears throat> standard. Off he goes. Yeah, so just um, got through year 12. And I remember finishing my exams and I was determined to go to schoolies for a few days and I didn't tell my coach because we had then Commonwealth Games trials were in the February. So this was obviously November, you know, when school. So I took off to schoolies for a few days and didn't tell him. I remember coming back. He's like, oh, you're back. I'm like, yeah. I was like, had torn the ass out of schoolies for a few days and come home. And then I just hit, you know, back into full on training. And so unfortunately then I had a bit of an injury, like my shoulders, because I, you know, it's all about the load now. We know that now, but back then I was just like, quick, got to get fit. You know, I mean, I was fit, obviously I'd been still been training, but had to sort of raise the bar. And in those days I was, we were of the mentality that you train like harder and further is better rather than, you know, now you train smart and you don't need to do the loads that we did, but we, you know, we'll back into that. And of of course in my brain, I, I knew what I'd done before the Olympics so I wanted to get up to those miles like the 120 k's a week so that I could feel confident that when I came to race I had that money in the bank and I was all ready to go so unfortunately got a few shoulder injuries and was not ideal but came Olympic trial time as Commonwealth Games trials in the February and they were in Adelaide and I qualified I finished I think second in the 800 and maybe third in the 400 and I think maybe fourth or fifth in the 200 so made the Commonwealth Games team which was to go to Scotland later that year and I'd sort of finished school. I'd taken a gap year. So I uh-huh. got into physio. I think I remember what I got for my year 12. I was going to ask yeah. you what school you got. Oh, I think it was about 432. It was out of 500. French let me down in the end. 76. <laughs> I'll never forget. I don't know why. I still, to this day, can't really speak French. See, if you just I know. search for the Eiffel Tower, things would have just I come know, on your I way. I know. I know. And spoken more French over there, maybe. Yeah, that might have been. Mm, yeah. Might have been. Got me across the line. <laughs> Anyway, yep, got into physio and deferred for a year so I could concentrate on swimming. And I was a bit bored with Adelaide and everyone else was going off doing their own thing. So I decided I'd move to Brisbane and train with Laurie Lawrence in the lead up to the Commonwealth Games. Moved up there, went and stayed with another swimming family and that didn't go so well. My shoulders were still a bit sore and... I had a manual car, but mum and dad had trucked mum's Rover Quintet up there for me to drive and I lived with this swimming family and then so that didn't work out really. So then I moved. Why didn't it work oh, out? Oh, just, yeah, I don't know. Just didn't click. Yeah. Look, it was a mother-daughter and I'd come from a really big family and it was just all a bit isolating. Food was very different. So then I moved to some family friends that lived up there. They lived in right near the city and that was fun. They had a bit more buzz about their family. But they actually ate a lot of spicy food. I'll never forget, you know, you'd get home starving from training because we literally trained. We'd train in the morning, go somewhere for breakfast to someone's house. Then we'd run and do weights. And then we'd go home for like an hour or two. And then we'd be back at the pool from three till seven. So we trained pretty much like seven or eight or ten hours a day. And I'd get home to these friends' house and there'd be these yummy looking rice salads. And I'd take a bite and they'd be they'd have like spice in them. They'd be really hot. We didn't eat a lot of hot food <laughs> back in the McBann house at Dalwood Court. Um, it was all pretty sort of, you know, standard, bland food. Yeah, steak and beetroot. Yeah, yeah, steak and beetroot, meat and three veg, roast occasionally, lamb chops, chopped <laughs> casserole, you know, all the standards. What else do you need? You don't yeah, need exactly. anything fancy. Exactly. Yeah. Where did you train? Like we trained pool? at Chandler. So I think I struggled a bit with that. And also the other thing too is I was like a bull at a gate and we trained really hard. And even though I was probably smarter than them on paper, they were a bit smarter than me that they wouldn't train hard every session. But we used to run stairs up and down Chandler. Chandler was, you know, built for the Commonwealth Games in too. And so we used to run stairs in bare feet, up and down stairs. Anyway, came home from my graduation 
I can't remember what month it was. I'd only been up there for a few months. I was remember running with my brother, my older brother. He was the one that used to call me Little Fatty and then had to call me Little because he went overseas and came back and I wasn't fat anymore. And we were running around the Torrens and I think we were about where, where the tennis is, that about yes. there, next gen is. And I had this really sharp pain in my ankle, my sort of my leg. And I said to John, I've got a really sharp pain. He's like, oh, don't, be so, don't be such a wimp. you know. So off we ran down around the weir back around to the festival theatre and by then I just said I can't run any further I have to stop and he's like oh I think he thought I was getting a bit soft anyway it happened just to be a policeman cruising around the festival theatre and he's like oh my sister's hurt her ankle I don't suppose you could drive us home he was living in North Adelaide at the time the policeman like yeah sure anyway I was so relieved the next day when I had the x-ray and I actually had a stress fracture of my fibula even though I was devastated because at least I could justify why I yes you're not a pain. wimp yeah I'm yeah, not exactly. a wimp yeah so that so I ended up in a plaster cast or a, f- a fiberglass cast and I moved back from Brisbane and I remember, you know, I was on crutches and then that was hurting my shoulder. So then I remember mum had to wheel me into training in a wheelchair and I used to train with a plaster cast on my leg at the aquatic centre. So you kept been, training? So I kept training while I, you know, I was going to the Commonwealth Games. So oh I, they put God. me in the cast. I think I was in the cast for maybe four or six weeks or something. And I used to I was swimming with a cast on. I was training with like the 12-year-olds. <laughs> you know, here I was going to the Olympics and I was being beaten by everyone. And that was all a bit demoralising. So it wasn't the ideal preparation for the Commonwealth Games. And, of course, coming off the Olympics, everyone, you know, fourth, the Olympics, all these finals, everyone was like, yep, she's the one. And suddenly it wasn't looking like I was the one at all. It was a bit bad. So that was not not a great experience. I called it one of my Annas Horribilises. I had a few of them. But still went to the Commonwealth Games. I came out of plaster the day before we got on the plane. Oh, goodness. Limped onto the plane. Got there. Wasn't allowed to march in the opening ceremony. They wouldn't let me because I was, you know, had just come out of... And I was like, oh, really? Couldn't they push you out in a wheelchair? Yeah. Well, no, that wouldn't have been. <laughs> well, it's not the Paralympics. Style. So, no, I don't think they would have... Keep up appearances, yeah, they would. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the Australian swimming team would have wanted that yeah I made two finals and I finished fifth and eighth which was pretty devastating because I kind of thought you know and also you go to the Commonwealth Games there's not too many swimmers Australian swimmers that go to the Commonwealth Games and don't win a gold medal or win a medal and I'd also been in the four by 200 relay team but in those days I swam in the heat because I wasn't they'd saved the two fastest for the final one of the other two fastest in the heat then I didn't get to swim the final and now if you swim in a heat you get the gold medal but in those days (laughs) you didn't get the gold medal for being a heat swimmer so I was like, oh. when they got home, everyone who won a medal got to go to like Lord Howe Island or something and I was like left behind. So it was really, it was quite a traumatic experience. But I did, after the Commonwealth Games, travelled around Europe with my sister for a bit and went to London. I mean, I had a fun time. And So had, what was going on in your head at that point um, in regards to swimming? Were you thinking, oh no, I've still got a lot in me to keep going or where were you at yeah, at that well, point? Well, I was, um, it was pretty tricky. It, it was hard because I think I sort of, been on such a high mm. you know it was a life lesson really life experience be frustrating I was eh? thinking would I or wouldn't I continue but I came back and I sort of had a break and I worked did a lot of swim teaching and um, worked for decks and stuff did a lot of swim teaching out of Elizabeth I've quite enjoyed that sort of giving back ran a program called Flippable, which was like modified rules water polo so I was quite involved you know in teaching and, and yeah. sharing and teaching kids and I love that I love that sort of giving and and I was starting physio so I wasn't making any big decisions and I made up for lost time let's just say <laughs> on the social stakes started physio and got back into swimming yeah on a of, recreational level I presume when you say go no, back. no so no, you no. went got yeah, back, back into, into professional it, yeah, yeah. swimming yeah, okay yeah. so right. I swam yeah I think I changed coaches again I think I ended up swimming with Peter Bishop at Norwood actually during my first year of oh no that maybe that was later when I made another comeback maybe back with Graham can't really remember exactly but I did uh, swim and basically the long and short of it was that was when I kind of realized it was more fun getting home at 4.30 in the morning than getting up at 4.30, 4:30 in, the morning, in the morning, although I was doing both <laughs> for a bit and studying physio, which was really fun and full on. I mean, you know, that was in the days where you went to uni and you kind of all knew everyone who was doing your course and everything was face to face. And if you weren't in a lecture or a tute, you were in the bar, the cafe or the library, you know, fun. And then the Olympic trials would have been early the year, the next year. And I think over that summer, I kind of decided that I, I knew I wasn't going to make the Olympic team. So I did big you know retiring and I remember the advertiser came to the house and you know Anna McVans hanging up her boots and all her togs you know that was it done so then I was into second year physio fun 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 and then I think by the time I got to third year I was a bit bored of all the partying and it was fun and so I started to get back into my swimming and was actually doing quite well and then finished physio and got offered a job at the Royal Adelaide which is like the creme de la creme like there was only seven or eight jobs and 
But at the same time, I'd actually applied. During those years I weren't, wasn't swimming, I did a – there was something called the Women's Apprentice Coaching Scheme. So I'd done my Level 1 coaching course with a guy called Dr. Ralph Richards who was a swim coach and he'd moved to the AIS to coach. So I'd sort of been liaising with him and we sort of lined it up and I ended up getting a scholarship to the AIS. So I'd finished physio. <clears throat> my parents were like, yeah, she's got a job, you know, life's going – and then I just said, actually, just letting you know that I'm not going to take that job, but I'm going to go to the AIS on a swimming scholarship and swim. They're like, what? And I got a part-time job at the Woden Valley Hospital, which was, is now Canberra Hospital. And so I turned 21 over the summer and then I packed up my bags and drove my Honda Civic to Canberra. For my comeback. Oh, my God. So, so that how was, did that go? How that did was that... 1991. Right. And I was all for the Olympics in 92. Yeah, it was great. I had a great time. It was really fun. I swam pretty well. But at the Olympic trials, you had to finish in the top. I think it was the top four then. So the 200 freestyle was my focus then. And I was sort of was a bit bigger. I wasn't quite the greyhound that I had been in the 80s. And I didn't make the team. Not by much. And so then I was like, right, what's next? And then there was like something like the World University Games, which I could still eligible. My mum and dad were just like, I don't think so. <laughs> like They were like, we think it's time. And I think, you know, after a bit, I thought, actually, I mean, I'd got fourth at the Olympics. Would I ever better that really realistically? At the ripe old age of 22, I think I was. And so that was it. So I yeah, finished up there and then and stayed in Canberra for a few years. And worked as a physio at the, worked as a physio at the Canberra Hospital. Yep. I was physio for the Tuggeranong Vikings, which was a rugby league club and the Ainsley Footy Club. But you continued <clears> to go to the Olympics in a different capacity. Wow. Yeah. Well, what happened next was I always wanted to travel. So remember, that was one of my things. So, And I had obviously done quite a bit of travelling with swimming. And so I decided I would go overseas. was working in London to start with, just doing agency work in London. I was working at Crystal Palace. Okay, so Crystal Palace was a big sports injury clinic, kind of like the Institute of Sport well, in Australia or South Australia. Crystal Palace was where they'd held the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games or something years ago and that's what it was built for. And there was this sports injury clinic under the grandstand at Crystal Palace and it was sort of the prime of sporting physio in, in London. And I'd got a job there. Not necessarily based on my physio skills, but I think they saw that I'd swum at the Olympics on my CV. And, and I think everyone kind of thinks if you've swum at the Olympics, you must be Olympic standard at everything. So I took the job and it was this amazing clinic and we worked with all these sporting teams. Then through there, I became physio for the, the British diving team and we were physio for the London Broncos, which was kind of like the Brisbane bon- Broncos had moved to London. Like they were all Brisbane boys that were playing for the rugby league team. And all these world athletics meets would be run at Crystal Palace. So we'd be the physio for them. So it was, you know, it was great. So I ended up as physio for the British diving team. And through that, ran into some people at these meets. I'd travel around with the diving team. So I'd go to Europe and America, cross, you know, the Atlantic with the teams caught up with the Australian diving team. There was a few connections there from my swimming days. And so suddenly, because the Australian diving team couldn't afford their own physio to fly over from Australia. So then I became the physio for the Australian diving team based in London. So I ended up going to the Commonwealth Games with them to Victoria, Canada in 94. Wasn't officially on the team, but was there with them. Used to meet them in Florida. They had meets in Florida. They were fun. I ended up going to the Atlanta Olympics with them in 96, but again, not on the team. And then I got a pass to get into the village and then some of the, it became very political. So I started to see the other side of elite sport. You know, I'd always been the, the athlete, saw the world through rose-coloured glasses and suddenly I'm involved in, in sort of the, obviously the medical side, but the admin side of, of sport and, and the fact that the divers didn't have their own physio that came from Australia, they didn't have the financial backing that say the swimmers, swimmers and the cyclists did but we'd be on these training camps and and I'd be there but I wasn't actually officially on the team so there was a bit of like oh what's she doing here and it's like well the diving team were like she's our physio you know so there was a bit of politics so I wasn't allowed into the village which is kind of fair enough because I guess you know if you're a physio on the Olympic team that that's like being a, a swimmer that gets to the Olympics that's the pinnacle of your career and suddenly I'm just swanning in the side the divers very different sort of discipline at that stage with from my perspective compared to the the swimmers um, even though we did fairly festive in our day post events the divers were <laughs> yeah and interesting not so festive well or, very festive very oh, festive. Oh, they yeah, were festive. a little bit more festive oh more festive um, okay but amazing athletes too and I think as swimmers we sort of you know you sort of look at the divers and the synchronized swimmers and think oh you know 
but yeah, amazing. So they had some very challenging injuries, of course, hitting the water at such great force and just their gymnastic ability. And so that was a great experience. So how many years altogether did you do that for? So I was over there on and off. I worked in Canada too, did a season in the ski fields in Whistler in between all that as a physio, which was fun. So I was overseas probably from 94 till the end of 97 when I decided I'd come home to do my master's in manip physio. So I'd sort of had a lot of sports stuff. So I chose to do my master's in more manual stuff rather than sports because I felt like I had the sports kind of knowledge. Done, and done I had, I'd, Not yeah. long after that got my sports title or whatever. So that was all sort of ticked. So I came back to do my master's, came back home through Africa and I thought I'd always go back, straight back overseas and work overseas. I always visualised myself living in Paris or New York or in a big city, London maybe. Or I came home through Cape Town and I went to the university and I went to a big sports clinic in Cape Town and sort of was planting the seed to go back and work there. But the sports clinic didn't matter what I'd done. The fact that I was female was I was very much like wasn't interesting. And then the university, they, have, they had quotas then. So you had to have equal black and white students regardless of their academic ability yep. to enter the university in Cape Town as a physio. So I thought, hmm, interesting. I didn't go and I yeah. went back there. Never, never Pursue got. Pursue that. Well, no, no, when I came home, did my master's, mm. was planning my next little adventure. I'd literally just handed in my thesis. So this was sort of mid-98 and then went on a camping trip to the Flinders and met Farmer Tom. Oh, okay. Let's get to Farmer Tom. In a creek Tom. bed. In a creek he bed. He didn't want me to talk about him. I'm like, it's been 25 years nearly. So More details, please. So a mutual friend of ours, a different... Matthew Pick was family friends of ours growing up and then had been at Ag College with Tom. He'd also been to medical school and then is now a winemaker, but he's very highly trained, our dear friend Picky. And he organised his camping trip on the long week, June long weekend in the Flinders. Well, I thought that I was the only single girl and there's a lot of single boys. Picky had a new girlfriend, his now wife, Fiona, Donald, and I remember going up in the car with them. First night we must have stayed at Hawker maybe? Ironic. Uh-huh, ironic, yeah. But Tom wasn't there then because he played footy, played association footy. I think he played at Kadena on the Saturday of the long weekend. So unbeknown to me, Picky had left a note on the pinboard at the Blinman pub for this guy who was coming. Anyway, so we're on the creek bed and suddenly this light, this ute comes in, lights, outsteps this guy in a red jump. I'm like, I said to the others, oh, I think the farmer's come to tell us off. And they were like, oh, no, that's Tom. You know, like, oh. So anyway, Tom had played footy in Kadena, driven to Blinman, f- had two flat tyres on the way, driven to Blinman, found the note on the pub, go two creek beds down, turn in the gate, come on. And he rocked up and he said all he remembered was that I was obviously had a few champagnes that night. I was a bit loud. Anyway, <laughs> the next day, so we'd all been up there watching the stars, fun, 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 camping trip. And then the next morning he'd said, oh, does anyone want to come in the ute with me? I've got to get my tyres fixed. I'm like, oh, sure, I'll come. And it turned out that the girl I was living with at the time was best friends with his sister. And I'd met his sister, but I didn't know him at all. He said he remembered me from... Judy's dancing, like I remember, I think it might have been the blue and white he might have remembered me from years ago that, you know, people, someone had pointed me out as the Olympic swimmer. But So let's just go back. So you put your hand up and said, yes, I'll go with you. So you must have thought, no, he's all right. Oh, I'm always up for a bit of adventure, you know. No, I, I wasn't actually, I don't think I was thinking that way. But he said I talked at him the whole time. He said he, that he had to stop and get beers out. Anyway, so, but of course, I didn't actually end up kissing him or anything on that camping trip. And of course, at, unbeknown to me, he did have a girlfriend, sort of, at the time, but not really, you know, some, and I didn't know that. So that was kind of well. But I ended up going out with a different boy from the camping trip who was living in London, friend, another friend of Picky's. And I remember going, I went to London, back to London for a friend's wedding and he, that didn't go anywhere. So that was fine. And then I got back from that trip and re-met Tom at one of those. They used to have these balls at the museum, the museum balls, um, things they were called like get humped and have a whale of a time or something like that. <laughs> or I can't even remember what they were called. But, you know, it was like, it was like a B&S in the city kind of thing, you know, black tie. And I remember meeting I up with him. I bring them back. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what it was called. No, but <laughs> and there was things about like, you know, dinosaur parties. I can't remember. I'd have to Google it to see what they were. But the museum balls they were and really fun. So I met up with him again that night. And that would have been about the September or October of 98 maybe. And luckily I was living with this friend who was off a farm. And so we'd be going out for dinner and he wouldn't turn up or turn up. It would be covered in like sheep stain or... And I was like, really? And she's like, he's lovely. Just, you know, and I remember coming up here for the first time 
and just thinking, oh, he could be like taking me anywhere. And Tom at that stage lived at Bubarawi, which was another 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, right. on this little, in this little house with palm trees out the front, earwigs in the kettle, freezing cold. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? But the funny thing about that was then actually he'd come home from that camping trip and said to his mum, I think, oh, do you remember that Olympic swimmer? And I met her on the weekend and he said to her, she's on Zoloft. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. She's on, she's on an antidepressant. And I think I was at the time. <laughs> what? Well, I, I'd come back from overseas, living, you know, I'd been living the dream, back at home, living with my parents where I had been six years ago. I, was having, I had had a bit of a – like it wasn't a, a great year. Okay. I was studying and living at home with mum and dad. All my friends were – married, finished their degrees, all working, earning money. And here I was back with my parents. You know, it was a bit of a transitional time. It was okay. I'm not – there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people on But the fact antidepressants. that his he's mother. told his mum. And so you can imagine when he brought me home for like to stay or visit one time, she'd have been thinking, oh, what has the cat dragged in? <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. Poor Anne Hawker must have, you know, when he did finally bring me home. But look, all's well that ends well. So that was 98. Came okay. off Zoloft. <laughs> Once I got my master's, I think I, that was sort of put that to bed and moved on, got a job. No one could believe that I'd met a farmer. Of all the people who would, you know, marry a farmer, it was me. But, our, you know, we, we sort of went out for a couple of years. We got engaged in 2000, actually, just before the Olympics. I was commuting. I worked up here for a bit in Clare and that was all too hard. I thought, oh. I always thought I'd marry a banker, actually, and live in London. But the interesting thing too, I always used to find in London, I lived there on and off, the boys you could take out in a dinner suit, you couldn't take on a mountain bike ride or a hike with, do you know what I mean? The London, like the boys that we hung out with, I mean, well, that's not true. Some of my English friends would debate that, but anyway. So what was about Tom that you liked? He was good with his hands, the rustic nature of it all. Yeah, I think he just compliments me, like I'm all or nothing and he's just level, you know, he's a bit of a thinker. He's very smart, even though on paper not very academic. You know, I mean, having said that, he's, you know, done postgrad study and everything and he's a very, very smart and capable farmer, obviously. He said in our wedding speech, he likes the wings on the chicken, I like the drumstick. I like to, like, go for a run, whereas he loves ball sports, saying that I didn't even know the difference between seeding and harvest, and I didn't. Like, I didn't know anything about farm life. I knew nothing. What did your family think when you met a farmer? Tom kept saying, you know, you can't, you know, I I must have said I was going to run away at some stage, because he said, you can't, your dad will just send you straight back. He said, oh, your father was so thankful that I came along. But ironically, the funny thing was, I'm going to forget, Tom used to rock up, you know, his ute, late, whatever, and the first time he met my parents, I remember we were going up to... um, the restaurant Norton Summit and he was meeting my parents anyway he rocks up in his parents Commodore so every time it had been the U rocks up in his parents Commodore in a suit to meet my parents I'm like what what is going on here of course mum and dad thought it was heaven on a stick there was one funny story actually when I was dating Tom my sister in Melbourne had met a family friend of the Hawkers and he'd said to Sue my sister did you know your sister's dating one of the most eligible bachelors in South Australia and he's got a town named after him? And Sue said, does he know she's got a street named after her in Paralawi? So I've got a McVan street named after me in Paralawi. Isn't that the funniest story ever? (laughs) (laughs) So look, I didn't know anything about farming. The Hawkers obviously have a massive tradition up here and, you know, obviously – you know, Bungaree and, yep. and the family history, which I love. And I haven't really probably taken on as much as I should, but I sort of am understanding it more and more now and trying to gather that knowledge. Obviously, Tom's mom is, Tom's dad has passed away, but there's, you know, books written. It's great. You can look yeah. up your family tree in a book. Yeah. You know, that's the Hawkers. <laughs> and we can't do that with the McVans. My farmer clients that come laugh and they're like, oh, so you're the wife of a farmer. So I'm not a farmer's wife. I mean, I've been in the sheepyards. I did a certificate in rural office practice when we were first married, but I nearly failed and I didn't finish it because I sat around the table talking about succession planning with all these women in their Chetwind and Bullrush and they were talking about farming. And I was, you know when you just have a light bulb moment, you go, actually, I have my master's in physio. I'm pretty good at what I do. You didn't want they to wouldn't let me into the farm office then anyway and, they, oh. and I still don't really. Like Tom, I've had a few moments where I've gone in and it just doesn't work. Like we're better if we, I think, you know, I mean we work together but – but separate. Yeah. So I'm the wife of a farmer. Having said that, I did rouse in the shearing shed for four hours last Saturday. First time ever. And first time ever. First time ever rousing, yeah. Four hours, yeah. But I've been in the sheep yards a few times and I do help, you know, I do, like during seeding and harvest. So once you got married and you started having kids because you had four kids in a very short period mm. of time, mm. 
It must have been really difficult in those early days. Do you know, I can't actually remember much from 2003 to 2009 and I and I say that with complete, like that is true. And I look at photos and I go, where was that? I remember when my parents, when mum was alive and she'd say, don't you remember we went to Robe? I'm like, did we? She'd pull out the photos. Oh, so we did. I mean, I worked. You oh, kept working I kept working. Yeah, I, I never had more than maybe three or four months off after each paper. Only part-time. But, you mm. know, that was one of the things. Mm. Work part-time if I want to. Travel the world. I'd done that. was working part-time. Yeah. When I first came to Clare, I worked in the hospital and worked in a couple of physio practices. And then physio Clare, I was there for 15 years. And that was great. I mean, we were all mums, apart from the boys, obviously. And they were dads. It just worked. And... Do you know what? I can't remember. Can't remember. I can't really remember. Well, sitting remember. out here on your deck now, it's a beautiful sunny day. We're looking over this big beautiful dam, sprawling green lawns, mm. a swimming mm. pool. Life's looking pretty good mm. from an mm. outsider's perspective looking into your mm. life. Yeah, yeah. Is life pretty good? Yeah, yeah. I'm, look, I mean… Kids are all the way at boarding school. Very fortunate. Yeah, well, that's, that, that's, uh, that's challenging at times. You know, that's a decision we make. But yeah, it just goes so quickly. I think that's the big thing. Life just goes so quickly. Like, you know, the Clare Valley is a beautiful place to live. And people say, how do you go living on a farm? Well, it's never all beer and Skittles, is it? But we've got four healthy children who are all within the boundaries of normal. You know, some days are better than others. It's a full-time job looking after them, even though they're at boarding school and interstate and studying. Any of them want to follow your footsteps and swim? Or oh, physio. Swim. So that well, we have got one doing physio. We had they all swam. They, they all, all swam. swam. Yep, and they're all very good swimmers. Oh, of course. I think yep. there was a little bit of pressure on them. They're all doing other sports now. Like oh, okay. Imogen was my last one. She swam to quite a high level and nearly sort of nearly made nationals. And she's now rowing, so she's she's the last one. And and the boys moved into you know footy pretty quickly. They love team sports. And Jess is running, so she's part of Runners One, which is a big running club in Adelaide with oh. quite a few Olympians as the coaches, and so she's loving that. And she's studying physio, so she's second-year physio, so third-generation physio. What do your kids think about your history? Um, I think they're very proud. I think there have certainly been moments where they would like to crawl under a rock and wish it hadn't happened. I think, Why? Um, oh, I think little things like, I don't know who, if anyone's been to the Aquatic Centre at Marion, but there's a picture of me on the wall standing on the balcony. In, as, a, as a member of the Swimming Hall of Fame, the picture they have of me is on the balcony at the town hall after the ticker tape parade when we got back from the Olympics. And I literally look like I think I'm a rock star standing on the balcony with my arms in the air. So everyone else has swimming photos. And in fact, my dad, before he passed away, one of his wishes was that I had a swimming photo put up there. So I must do that. But I guess, you know, they're always animate. It was always like my brothers and sisters, Anna McVan's sister or brother, Anna McVan's child. But I think there probably is a bit of an inherent pressure on them certainly in the swimming pool there was you know oh your your mum's olympic swimmer are you going to the olympics but they've all risen above that they've all got their own passions and their own and i think they they you know are proud of obviously proud of of what i achieved and and hopefully a little bit of that sort of discipline and um hard work and drive to succeed has 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 come through the gene pool i think it has actually (laughs) i can almost certainly say it has (laughs) what's the next step for you well, what's the next step for yeah, Anna? Walker? In fact, someone asked me about what my goals were for the next three years, and I mm. couldn't answer that. I know where I would want to be in 10 years' time. So I'm running my own physio business now, which was I never really wanted to do. I always worked for other people and loved that. But I decided to have a break when Tom's dad was quite sick, and our eldest two were about to go to boarding school. I pulled out of physio Claire, took long service leave, and then decided I'd just do my own thing. And I had run Pilates there for years, Pilates mat classes, and I'd started a course in 2000 before we got married on the equipment that there was no equipment in Clare and I didn't have the equipment, which is quite expensive. I then went on and finished my course, my Pilates equipment course. My dad passed away and left me a bit of money, so I bought the rest of my equipment. I already had a few pieces and... I'd finished at Physio Claire and I'd started to see a few patients at home and then it just grew from there. Started to run mat classes, started to run. And so now I've taken over the farm dining room and I have my own Pilates, clinical Pilates studio and physio practice. Well done. Mm. And I never wanted to run my own business and it wasn't till my mum passed away and I did her eulogy and I knew she was a physio obviously, but I worked out that she only started her physio practice when I was in year 11 or 12. So she was 50 or so. And I thought, oh, wow. Because I sort of thought, oh, well, I'm too, I'm too old to start my own practice. I don't want to... But so I'm now running my own business. I wish I'd done just one business subject. I say I'm very good at earning and spending money, but I'm not very good at managing it. And business is not my thing, but I love my job. So I don't like the business side. 
I don't have anyone helping me with that. I keep thinking about getting someone to help, but then I think then I might have someone else to manage. You know, I've already got four children at the spot. So that is what you're doing now. Yeah. So where do you see yourself in 10 years' time then? Well, I would hope that we would be travelling. Like, And this is my thing too. I feel like I've got more to give. So I, obviously I have coached the swimming club here for yes. over 10 years now. Head not, coach not the swimming club. Not anymore though. Well, I'm still involved and Are I you? love it. I really okay. love it. I just can't run the whole show because I'm not – I can't give that time commitment with my business and the kids everywhere. And it's time for someone else to kind of be involved. So I I'm, I'm love it. I'm so passionate about it. And I love doing that. And I love helping kids. And I love teaching kids to swim and making a difference. And so I will continue to do that in some shape or form. I said to Tom, I would love us to travel and I could work doing physio stuff or swimming stuff. At, you know, And he could maybe do some farming stuff in less fortunate communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what I would see myself perhaps us doing in providing someone else comes and runs the farm. I was wondering that. I'm thinking yeah. the boy's going to come back here. Well, we've got four children, you know. Let's not be gender – hopefully. Oh, girls, yeah, yes, I should say that. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. But, you know, otherwise, you know, there's lots of other ways to run a farm, aren't there, these days. And in the short term, I feel like COVID has been really challenging for everyone, of course, but in health, particularly as a sole practitioner, the responsibility of that has sort of worn me down a little bit. So I feel like – I told you I dabbled in a bit of teaching this year back at UniSA and I, I enjoyed that. It was quite challenging. I mean, the travel was challenging. COVID was – there were lots of challenges with that um, and I haven't continued with that just now but that might be something I uh, look into. When I was doing finishing off my Pilates stuff, I worked a day a week at a clinic in Adelaide. So I've got lots of obviously physio connections. Maybe that is something I might do. Mm-hmm. So lots of options. But I mean, I've been very fortunate, very grateful for where I've landed. And, and you know, I feel like you create your own luck a bit. People often say to me, you were so lucky you went to the Olympics. Well, you know, uh, I mean, yeah. look, definitely hard, the I opportunities presented. And I was very fortunate that I had a family that supported me to the unconditionally financially we that we they could afford for that to happen and i was was going to say because all that swimming Mm. and coaching it Mm. would have been quite costly towards the end of it if you added well i mean the beautiful thing about swimming is that you know the government pays for a lot of those trips so mum and dad weren't necessarily i mean spending money i'm obviously coaching and stuff but i was lucky in the day you know early days of sort of i was never sponsored but i got given a car jelly beans and speedo used to give me bathers and so you know I was pretty lucky in that respect mm. and coaching fees weren't you know massive so yeah I was very fortunate all the all the ducks lined up for me and and I've continued to be I mean a couple of my family members like oh you know we knew that would work out for you because everything does what are you the most proud of first thing that comes to mind I think I'm proud of the fact that Tom and I together have produced four beautiful children, all healthy at the moment, touch wood, and happy. So that's obviously, you know, incredible. And they're all going on to do things and hopefully grow up to be good, kind-hearted people, which they already are. Because I think that's that's what I'm proud of. I'm proud of the fact that I love doing things for other people and that, and I want to ho- hope that we have passed that on to our children as well, which, I, you know, I'm sure we have. So I'm extremely proud of them. I'm proud of my husband. He does an amazing job on our farm. So, you know, the philosophy always been, I guess, that you want to leave the land in a better place than you found it. And he's certainly, you know, done that in spades, I think. And so he, um, we both have a, a big work ethic and we've passed that on to our children. So I think we're proud of that. I think proud of all of the kids that I have had the privilege of coaching and hopefully I've passed some of that on to them, that it's not about being the best. It's just about being the best that you can. And I feel that I wasn't the best at what I did, but I definitely got the best out of myself in that space. And now that's kind of backfires a bit. Like I know I, I know what it's like to be the best in the world at something. And so I, so it's a bit of a cop out, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more to life than putting all your eggs in one basket. And so I feel like I've been privileged enough to know that. You're always searching for the next thing. Mm. Does it feel like that? Mm. You don't let moss grow between your toes, that's mm. for sure. Yeah. I have a bit of a problem at sitting still. This is good for me. Really good. Actually, I haven't got up to do anything. Yeah, and people will say that. My daughter, her dream is to be an Olympian mm. swimmer or runner. That's all she wants to do. Mm. She's only eight. She doesn't know what's involved in mm. that. But for those kids that are listening to this or adults with kids that are really good at sport or have the potential to go further – What's your piece of advice to them? 
just don't be afraid to dream big. Like, just follow your dreams. The bit I didn't tell you was actually I flew to the Moscow Olympics with a friend on her pet budgerigars. Like, you know, I had this thing when I was in year seven at school. She was at another primary school. We went to the Olympics on her budgerigars. That was our little, like, fantasy thing. Like, so that was the Olympic. And then four years later. What do you mean? Later, Sorry, what does well, that mean? Well, we pretended the Moscow Olympics were on and she had two budgerigars, Percy and Peppy, and we dreamed or we visualized that we were well pretended that we were flying to the olympics on our budgery on her budgery guards you know and so i think don't be afraid to dream big set goals if i'd listened to that that couple that said to me you're wasting your time and money like don't let anyone get in the way mm. of it you know don't be afraid to chase your dreams seriously anyone can do it to the kids i would say dream big follow your dreams don't let anyone tell you you can't do it But to the parents, I would say it's got to come from them. Hmm. Like at the end of the day, they have to be the ones that want to do it. You can only lead a horse to water. And, you know, that's the number of people I meet, you know, oh, I nearly made it to the Olympics or I I would have been an AFL player. Like, yeah, right. Everyone. There's a million of those people. And look, for whatever reason, that didn't happen for them. But actually, you can do it. Hmm. You can do it. Anna? Awesome story. I'm just in awe of you and I learned so much in the last hour or so. I didn't know half of that. So thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Lovely to speak to you, Belle. Anna Hawker, just wow. How wonderful to have someone like Anna in our Clare Valley community teaching the next generation of swimmers. We're very lucky to have her. Anna was also inducted into the South Australian Swimming Hall of Fame back in 2008. I hope you enjoyed this roller coaster of a ride with Anna Hawker. Please share this episode with family and friends. Her story is pretty special. Catch you next time for another episode of The Voice It Podcast. 